Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back for part two of our discussion about where's my eternal youth? Why can't I be young and beautiful forever? Why do we age? I know. That's the, it's the question we've always wondered. It, it shows up in our philosophical uh, writings. It shows up in our religion, our mythology. Uh, in researching this topic, I kept thinking back to Genesis 6-3. This is the uh, King James Version. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. So there's God uh, putting a, a, a limit on how old a human can become and saying, like, here's the aging process. Uh, these are the rules. Obviously doesn't apply to Highlanders. That's right. Well, you know, maybe they're part of the giants in the earth or something. I don't know. Oh, that could be. Yeah, I guess they're not human. So what does well, it matter? Well, yeah, spoiler for Highlander 2, oh. certain cuts, <laughs> they are not from Earth, right? Uh, in the good cuts, they're not <laughs> from Earth. Yet again, we're just trying to throw those seeds down. Highlander 2 episode, it's coming. Now, speaking of parts 1 and 2, this episode is a part 2. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to part 1 yet, you should go back check that out first. In that, we explored the question of why we age. We look at some uh, animals that don't really age in the same way that humans and other similar mammals do. And uh, we look at historical explanations people have tried to come up with for why we age and we also explored some reasons to think that those historical explanations were not correct. Today, we're going to try to get into the modern evolutionary synthesis take on why we age, what's happening, and how do you solve this paradox of the fact that aging is a decline over time in our survival and reproduction fitness, and yet evolution should be constantly optimizing our survival and reproduction fitness. Why would it allow us to go into this period where we tend to die and tend to get worse at surviving and tend to not be able to reproduce anymore? Indeed, because I certainly don't want to deify natural selection and say that like natural selection produces you know, perfect forms or ideal forms, but look at the forms that natural selection has produced. Look at all the various engineering problems <laughs> that uh, that that evolution has managed to solve. Why would there be this be this huge, you know, at least from our perspective, uh, flaw in the design? Yeah. Now, of course, today, as we often do with evolution, just for the ease of communication, we're going to be using a lot of metaphors that offer a kind of like uh, embodied view of mm -hmm. evolution, as if like it's making choices. What we, of course, know is that evolution is a uh, is an optimization algorithm. It's not a person. It's not a thing. It doesn't really have desires of it, of it of its own. It has a way that it works, and the way that it works is to optimize the success of genes that survive natural selection and reproduce. Now, one of the answers we explored in the last episode uh, is one of the, the most common things people are going to turn to when they're trying to explain why we age. It's the thing that my brain Im immediately went to before I read anything on this subject. I started to think, well, let's see, if everybody just lived forever and nobody naturally aged out and died, 
then you'd have way too much competition for resources, right? Mm-hmm. You'd have way too many people trying to live on the same landscape. You'd have too many people trying to eat from the same food sources. You'd have overpopulation, and, and everybody would suffer for it. Yeah, overpopulation ties into a number of our different dystopian views of the future, as does the possibility of immortality becoming an option, at least to certain privileged people in society. You know, you get this sort of trope of the awful... Uh, Methuselah of the future. Right. Some just dreary, old, greedy individual who will not die and let go the reins of life uh, so that others may grasp it. Right. Well, as much as we don't personally want to grow old and die, you can sort of recognize from an impartial standpoint, if you just consider it in other people, that it seems kind of unfair that people should live forever, right? Yeah. Yeah, unless it's me or someone that I'm investing in, then they should put a limit on that stuff. Yeah. So, But these types of answers, while true, it is true that it's good for the species that we should age and die and that it's good for future generations. Uh, good of the species and good of the group-based explanations come under a lot of fire from evolutionary biologists. Uh, there's some biologists who endorse kind of qualified versions of, of good of the group and good of the species type explanations, but there are, I think, many more who don't. And here's an example to illustrate one of the big problems in, in why these good of the group explanations fail to hold up. All right, hit me with it. Okay, let's imagine a pack of alien space wolves. Okay, and for our Warhammer 40,000 fans out there, he is not talking about space marines here. Wait, I don't know what space wolf Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a faction of the space marines in uh, the Warhammer 40K universe. Yeah, That are wolves? Well... No, they well they wear wolf skins and they're uh, you know genetically enhanced super soldiers. Okay, so it would really complicate the the the, the analogy you're making here if uh, if we were to to draw them into the discussion. Well, I was just trying to make clear that this is a hypothetical, not like real wolves on Earth. Okay, okay, so alien space wolves living on an asteroid somewhere and hunting space deer. Now let's imagine this pack of alien space wolves has evolved genes that cause them to grow old and become infertile after about ten years of age. After which, you know, they usually die within a couple of years. And let's say that each female space wolf has an average of one space wolf pup every year that she remains fertile. So unless the space wolf is killed by injury or disease or a marauding space explorer, um, the average space wolf female has 10 offspring in her lifespan. Everybody's happy, right? Because they don't eat too many of the space deer. They don't become overpopulated. It just works out pretty well. But then, suddenly, one of these space wolves acquires a mutation that allows her to stay fertile and survive for 12 years instead of 10. Hmm. So she has 12 space wolf pups, whereas all the other females in the pack are still having 10. And half of her pups carried this extended fertility and longevity gene. So those six pups each have 12 pups, while non-carriers of the gene only have 10, and so on and so on down the generations. And eventually, this cheater gene for extended life and extended fertility is going to proliferate, even if it might be worse off for everybody in the long run, even if the long-living, long-reproducing animals have too many offspring and consume too many resources and suffer dieouts, this won't really cause a reselection towards shorter lifespans because how would it? 
Instead, what it would do is optimize for whatever genes are possessed by the survivors of those dieouts, and that would probably be like those that store fat better or hunt better or can extract nutrition from space moss in addition to meat. And this is a really common type of argument against good of the group and good of the species explanations in evolution because any mutation that cheats on the stasis you've created for the good of the group will tend to start to get an edge and then have more offspring than those who don't cheat and eventually that new gene will become the norm, right? Yeah, it's kind of like if you have a... Um uh, you know, an academic environment where everybody's cheating on the exam, the exam, the grading becomes that much harder each and every time, right? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. yeah, it's great. So it's like you you got to grade on a curve because everybody's cheating. So everybody's grade goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so it, I just want to remind you, though, this doesn't mean that there is not such a thing as the good of the group and the good of the species. Those things clearly are true. And it clearly is true that it's good for the next generation that older generations age out and die. I care about the survival of the rest of my group. I, I care about members of my species and about future generations. But I care because I have a brain mm-hmm. and I can recognize what's going on. My genes don't care and your genes don't care. They just chemically proliferate themselves. They don't have a sentimental attachment or, or an idea that the next generation should get resources too. All right. So this just brings us back to the question, though. Why have we evolved to grow old? Right. It's still unsolved. Why not live and reproduce forever, maintaining perfect youth and vigor until something extrinsic happens, until we get killed by a hemorrhagic fever or a tractor accident? All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will answer that very question. All right, we're back. All right, so there are a number of modern, well-accepted scientific theories trying to answer the question of why we evolved to age. And here's a starting point for several of those theories. Let's go back to the wolves for a second. Imagine uh, the space wolves. Maybe a hypothetical wolf species could breed and stay healthy until about the age of 10, like we said. Mm -hmm. Why not 20? Why not 30? Why not 500? Well, here are a few things to consider. Wolves did not evolve in zoos or as domestic pets where they're guaranteed meals and protection from violence and guaranteed access to veterinary care. The landscape that created the wolf as it exists is one in which there is a constant struggle to get enough meat to survive and to not get sick and die and to not get injured and become unable to hunt so you starve. If you are a wolf living in the wild and you survive the first year of your life, one of these things like injury or disease or starvation very likely will kill you before you get a chance to reach old age. These causes of death like disease and injury are what's known as, quote, extrinsic causes of death, death caused by outside pressures and not by stuff that's in your genes or by old age. And so we can look at a real-life example to see how common this is. The actual gray wolf, Canis lupus, lives somewhere around an average of six years or so in the wild. But in captivity, it can live for more than 15 years. So here's the first crucial bit. To use some more metaphorical language, if there are physical processes that tend to render a wolf progressively less fit every month after it's more than 10 years old – Evolution almost never sees that. 
To put it in another metaphor, asking why evolution allows the wolf to grow old, to deteriorate with old age, is kind of like asking why we don't have laws against time travel. (laughs) The reason isn't that our legislative bodies have considered and debated the issue of time travel, and in the end they concluded that time travel is good, we better better allow it. That's not what happens. What happens is the issue doesn't come up. Yeah, it, it it reminds me of some of these various programs that uh, and forms you have to do to figure out uh, how you're saving your for your retirement. Yeah, and they tend not to cover the second century of your life, right? Because it's not going to happen. That's a perfect metaphor. Yeah, how come you're not saving enough money for when you're 200 years old? It's not that you've decided it's better to be broke when you're 200. It's just that the the situation of being 200 does not tend to come up very often. Now, obviously, it's not nearly that extreme because sometimes, in some cases, animals do live to old age and they face biological senescence under natural conditions. But for many species, it's pretty rare. For species of animals that tend to die from one cause uh, or another before they get the chance to grow old, evolution doesn't have many opportunities to test what happens in old age, so it can't optimize the animal for old age very efficiently. And compare this to how strongly evolution tests and optimizes for the effects of genes that manifest in early life. If something affects how likely you are to survive at age 20 or at age 10, evolution is going to be very strongly selecting for or against that gene. Okay, so this is one part of the landscape of explanations today. Most species that show significant aging evolved to their anatomically modern condition in a situation where mortality was high and evolution didn't get a lot of opportunities to see what happens in old age, much less optimize it. Uh, Let's introduce another wrinkle into the explanation. Yeah, this one has a wonderful title. This is Mutation Accumulation. Right. So we go to the British biologist, Peter B. Medawar. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of the primary evolutionary thinkers credited with working out the implications of this model of aging, where the force of selection just declines with old age. So in several works in the middle of the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, he argued based on similar logic that nat- natural selection would often be blind to the effects of mutations that cause negative effects late in life after reproduction is mostly stopped. So let's use another analogy. Imagine a mutation called the 20th birthday surprise gene, (laughs) which means that on the day you turn 20, carriers of this gene suddenly transform into a bucket of fish heads and thus lose all ability to reproduce. Okay. Now, this would mean that in order to pass on this gene, a carrier would have to reproduce before their 20th birthday. So kids they have before they're 20 years old could still carry this gene. But they don't get the chance to have any kids after they're 20 years old when plenty of other members of the species would continue having children. All potential reproduction after 20 is canceled, thus giving people with this gene significantly fewer children on average than people without it. And so the gene is unlikely to spread in the population. Okay. Now imagine a similar gene. This is the 100th birthday surprise gene. Carriers of this gene, upon the day of their 100th birthday, suddenly transform into a VHS copy of Highlander 2 The Quickening. Ah, okay, and, and, and therefore become immortal. No, not quite. <laughs> no, the problem is, well, I guess you, you might get to live somewhat forever on a shelf, but you, don't, you definitely don't get to reproduce after that, right? <laughs> there is very little sexual reproduction between copies of Highlander 2 The Quickening. But also, 
it doesn't really matter, right? Because do carriers of this gene have any fewer children than non-carriers of this gene? The answer is no, right? Because who's still having children at age 100? Almost nobody. So even if you have this very unhelpful gene, you don't like it that you transform into a VHS tape on your 100th birthday. That's not good for you. But it doesn't matter to how many children you have. It has no effect on that. So if you have this gene, you can spread it to all your children and they can spread it to all of their children. And so and they'll all have just as many kids and grandkids as the neighbors who don't have it. You've already passed it on by the time it matters. So this would be the case, though. Uh, we, we've, we've used the, the Highlander to transformation as, a, as an example here. But even if it were something seemingly beneficial, like, say, a gene that made you suddenly really excellent at talking to uh, members of the opposite sex at age 100, mm-hmm. you know, like, or, or the opposite. It made you terrible at, uh, at speaking to the opposite sex at age 100. Mm-hmm. It would still be the same case, right? Yeah, unless – basically the only thing that would matter would be if it's a gene that suddenly makes you able to reproduce again. Mm-hmm. I mean if it did that, then that would probably matter. But as long as you're past the age of reproduction mm-hmm. and you're not having any more children – mutations, good or bad, are just going to sort of accumulate randomly without having any effect whatsoever. Natural selection just doesn't pay attention to them because it never gets to notice them. Well, but but then the other thing, too, is that if you're talking about something that would kick in so late in life that even people with that gene might never experience it, right? Right. It's like if you're playing a role-playing game, a video game or what have you, and there's some sort of like high-level ability – and you look at it, and it looks great, but you know you're never going to play the game long enough to get it. Yeah. So what's the point? Right. Yeah, the game might as well, for you, not even have that thing in it. Mm-hmm. And apparently there are going to be genetic mutations like that. And this was Metawar's insight. It came to be known, as you said, as the mutation accumulation hypothesis. Uh, whether reproduction stops because you die of extrinsic causes, this was a big thing Metawar had in mind. It's like we talked about, you know, the wolf gets injured and can't hunt. The wolf gets sick and dies. The wolf gets killed by something. Uh, whether that happens or because you age out of your reproductive stage of life for some other biological reasons, genes that have negative effects that show up mostly after reproduction has stopped are not subject to the full force of natural selection. So there's not much preventing the proliferation of genes that harm you in old age because there's nothing to weed them out. And they accumulate in the genome over generations by what's known as genetic drift. And the genetic drift is just the random dispersing of genes that don't appear to have a very strong positive or negative effect. So if you've got a mutation that you acquire for a nasty surprise in old age, something bad that happens to your body. And you could look at the process of aging like this. It's just a large plethora of genetic mutations that cause bad things to, to happen to your body later on. You can still pass it on to your kids because you're, you've had all your kids by the time it starts affecting you. And so these genes can become common in the gene pool of your species simply because there's nothing stopping them. So simply put, if the force of selection declines with age, mutations that are neutral early in life when selection is strong but negative later on, they could accumulate in the population. I like to think of this as the sack of kitty litter scoopings in the closet scenario. What? Uh, Okay, explain. (laughs) A friend of mine, uh, when I first met her, she had a a cat box, and then she would scoop the cat box, and, and it would accumulate in a garbage bag in the closet. 
Accumulate. Uh, mean, you mean accumulate as in she would dump it. Yes. In a garbage bag yeah. in the closet. Yeah. And it was, it, it was a lot cleaner than this makes it sound, but mm-hmm. it was, it was very much a sort of kicking the can down a road scenario. Like eventually you're going to have to take that bag of, uh, of, of, of litter scoopings out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're not, you, 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 the whole situation is not built on what you're going to have to do tomorrow. It's about what's happening today. But what if you're looking at that closet and you're saying, oh, there's enough space in here that I could keep scooping it into the closet until I die of some other cause. Exactly. And then I would never have to take it out. It would be completely irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it can accumulate forever, just like these deleterious genes can. Okay, so that's clearly one part of the answer. One part is that... Stuff that affects you late in life is just less likely to get weeded out by natural selection. But what if there's something more than that? What if maladaptive genes that manifest in old age aren't just allowed to roam wild by sort of the careless shepherd of natural selection? What if they're positively selected for in some way? And that's what we'll explore when we come back from this break. All right, we're back. So now it's time to talk about antagonistic pleiotropy. In a paper in 1957 in the journal Evolution, the American evolutionary biologist George C. Williams had a breakthrough that made Medawar's original hypothesis even stronger and sort of complemented it. And so this was a paper that I mentioned in part one, actually. It's the paper called Pleiotropy, Natural Selection, and the Evolution of Senescence. Williams' hypothesis for uh, the evolution of aging came to be known, as I said, as antagonistic pleiotropy. And what this means is that, uh, well, pleiotropy, the word, comes from the Greek roots meaning multiple turns or many effects. Pleiotropy happens when a single gene codes for multiple different phenotypic effects, meaning effects on the body or effects on the behavior. So if you had one gene that both gave you black hair and gave you an extremely long pinky fingernail, that would be pleiotropy. Or if you had a gene that made you really tall and also made you uh, better at learning multiple languages, that would be pleiotropy. And there are lots of examples of this in animals in the real world. Here's one. In chickens. Robert, have you ever seen the frizzle chickens? Ooh, I don't know. I've seen some pretty funny-looking chickens before. I'm not I mean, sure I've seen a frizzle chicken. I mean, the ones that have like the curly Vegas outfits. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I have seen some of these, uh, these, these, uh, chickens that have like a lot of extra feathers around their, their talons and all. Now, the frizzle gene is mm-hmm. a, is a gene in chickens that causes the feathers to curl up instead of lying flat. So you oh, get these okay. crazy looking, uh, like awesome, beautiful, regal, puffy chickens. And they look really cool, but it turns out this gene also controls several other phenotypic effects. So if you are a chicken with the frizzle gene, you'll also have a different metabolic rate and different body temperature and lay a different number of eggs than the chickens who don't have this gene. So if you want the gene for the magnificent curl, you're going to be laying fewer eggs, among other things. And these are examples where the, the situation it feels more like a trade-off and probably has more in common with some of our, our myths, right? Because uh, the gift of the god often comes with some sort of uh, consequence. Yeah, exactly. So another one, just real quick, in cats, did you know about 40% of cats with white fur and blue eyes are also deaf? I have heard this one, yes. Yeah, odd. So pleiotropy can be like that. It can come in a kind of mixed blessing form, though I guess I don't actually know if blue eyes are good for the cat. Maybe that's double bad, but... Uh, well, 
you, I mean, certainly when you get into the selective breeding of uh, of a species, yeah. you get into a situation where appearance has uh, has an has a survival advantage. Yeah, exactly. So pleiotropy can go both ways. One effect of a gene could be good, while the other effect could be bad. And here's where we get the idea of, quote, antagonistic pleiotropy, a pleiotropy that's pulling in both directions. But usually it'll pull a bit stronger in one direction than another. So if the good effect outweighs the bad effect, the gene will spread through the gene pool. But if the bad effect outweighs the good effect, the gene will tend to go extinct. Though we should be clear again what's meant by good and bad genes here, because, for example, a gene that caused the carrier to uh, experience intense pain and misery throughout life, but somehow also caused the carrier to have more healthy children than the average member of their species would also spread. Hmm. So it's not optimizing for, like, you to have a long life or you to have a fun life. It's optimizing for number of offspring and the success of those offspring. Now, Williams' theory of antagonistic pleiotropy picks up from this fact. He hypothesizes that some of the genes that cause aging are selected for because they have other separate effects that maximize fitness and reproduction earlier in life, which, like Medawar showed, is more strongly selected for in nature. The same genes that make your skin sag and give you heart disease in old age might also make you extremely reproductively competitive when you're young. So here's a really broad example. How about genes that control the rate of cell division? Oh, yes. Yeah, so a hypothetical gene might be selected for because it makes cells divide more efficiently. And if cells divide more efficiently, it means you can rejuvenate tissues and heal wounds and grow faster when you're young. But the same gene that causes prolific cell division could potentially be a problem later in life because what happens when cells are prone to divide a whole lot? You could be prone to cancer. Cancer is runaway cell division. Cells that are not useful for the body are suddenly being created in, in great abundance. Ah, which brings us back to the hadrosaur example that we touched on earlier. Yeah, back in the first episode. Or you could think about something going exactly the reverse. You could have a gene that could increase apoptosis signaling, and apoptosis is programmed cell death. Mm-hmm. So a gene that, that causes cell lines to die off more frequently. And this would help prevent runaway cell lines from turning into cancer while you're young. Natural selection obviously would love this because it would select against organisms that get cancer when they're young and can't reproduce much. But the exact same gene would cause tissues to deteriorate more with age because they undergo more and earlier cell death. And in fact, something like what I just described has actually been studied. The example would be uh, the gene at P53. The P53 gene has been implicated in antagonistic pleiotropy, and it's thought that P53 protects young animals, including humans, but I think it's mostly been researched in mice. It protects these young animals against cancer by interrupting cell proliferation. It says, now don't, cells don't divide too much now. But in doing this, it can also have the effect of interrupting the proliferation of normal non-cancerous cells, like stem cells, which are the cells the body uses to rejuvenate tissues over time. So the same gene that plays some role in helping protect against cancer when you're young also helps play some role in the physical deterioration of the body with age by preventing it from making new cells and rejuvenating your tissues and detaining eternal youth. So the takeaway from this, obviously, is that 
anytime you see a story about eternal youth in fiction or in a movie or something like that, imagine these these characters who are eternally youthful riddled with cancer. <laughs> Well, it's not really not that hard to imagine, though, when you think about all the various uh, uh, side effects and caveats that come with eternal youth in most of our myths and legends. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, you've got a I guess it's not applicable in the Tithina story because he doesn't get eternal youth. He, mm-hmm. he wants to live forever. But the, imagine the equivalent of the Tithina story where you ask for eternal youth. So Tithinus asks for eternal life or he doesn't ask. Eos asks for eternal life for Tithinus. He gets eternal life, but not eternal youth. So it's mm-hmm. the monkey's paw coming back to bite him. In this story, you would ask for eternal youth and they say, "Okay, here is your eternal youth, but you get lots of cancer with it. And I think I actually have read in the past that some of these experimental youth extension techniques that people do research on initially look promising, but sometimes turn out to appear to increase cancer risk. Now, here's another example of a potential antagonistic pleiotropy, inflammation. So I want to cite one paper from 2008 in Bioscience Trends by Makoto Goto. And in this paper, the author explores the idea that a lot of the signs of physical deterioration associated with aging are driven by inflammation. But inflammation is a defense mechanism for the body. It helps you survive the redness, the swelling. It's not pleasant, but all that's part of a primitive immune system response that protects you against antigens and parasites. So Inflammation responses can help you survive when you're young, but later in life, inflammation-related aging effects cause widespread damage to the body, including all kinds of diseases from uh, type 2 diabetes to rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so the, the the kind of military reaction to invasion that is helpful for the young organism can be um, a, a detriment to the older organism, correct? Exactly okay. right. And so it's believed now by scientists that there are tons of things like this in the body. There are genes that have these antagonistic pleiotropy effects. They're good for you when you're young. They help you survive young adulthood and childhood and help you have more children early on. But the sa- very same genes having the very same effects also cause you to age and become sick and reduce your fitness later on in life when, as we established earlier, the force of selection is diminished. So one more theory that is pretty similar to these ones we've just discussed. We've got Metawar's mutation accumulation hypothesis, which says, you know, uh, natural selection doesn't pay much attention to what happens later in life. So negative mutations can kind of just hang out there without really being weeded out. Then you've got antagonistic pleiotropy, which says that some of the things that cause negative effects later in life are positively selected for because those negative effects later are much outweighed by positive effects early in life and uh, enhancing reproductive fitness early on. So there's a very similar theory along the same lines called the disposable soma theory. And this is a theory on the evolution of aging that was put forward in 1977 by the English biologist Thomas Kirkwood. And this reframes it as a question of resource investment in the body. Here's the basic premise. The body has a finite amount of resources that it can spend on various projects. And these projects would include things like speeding up reproduction in the youth and maintaining body tissues. And so... If you've got both of these things and you've got a limited budget to spend on them, you're going to need to make choices, right? How much goes to each one? And indeed, which one is the most important for the uh, the biological mission at hand? Right. And so drawing on the same logic we looked at earlier, if you live in a scenario where 
you don't tend to live to, you know, your natural end of life, uh, age, you tend to get weeded out by things happening to you in the wild, you know, predation or starvation or, uh, or, uh, a, a disease or injury, anything like that. It will obviously look to your body like you need to invest way more in those earlier stages in maximizing reproduction early on. And so drawing on Medawar, evolution is going to tend to favor pouring finite resources into early reproduction optimization instead of maintaining tissues for an infinite natural lifespan. Hmm. So I'm trying to think of a human equivalent. Uh, it, it sounds kind of silly, but basically like should the body spend its precious limited energy resources keeping your artery walls from thickening over time or spending them on making you super sexy? <laughs> well, you know, I God knows I am not an economist, but I find that when we discuss life cycles of organisms or or life cycles of of stars even I think of companies and how they work. So it comes down to a question as as say the the CEO or even the founder of a company, are you running the company like you want to retire from it and watch it continue to prosper as you um, in your retirement or are you running the company like you intend to sell it <laughs> you know or we, we know what the answer is in most <laughs> cases yeah you you're, you you in many cases you're running the company because in a, in a way that benefits the short term sale of the company or you're leaving this company for another company yeah, I mean, people like to have, uh, you know, sort of like long-term investment type rhetoric, but a lot of people have realized that the smart strategy for themselves is grab and go, mm-hmm. you know, optimize whatever you can get out of a system for yourself as soon as possible and then be on your way. And that's the equivalent here. That This is to say that it, you can't even be guaranteed that it'll matter whether you've got a gene that optimizes against atherosclerosis or not, but... If you can optimize for being real sexy and having lots of uh, successful reproductive strategies early on in life, you're pretty much guaranteed a better chance at having more children. And we have so many different adages that back up this kind of like personal philosophy in life, right? You know, burn it like you stole it. I believe, not burn it like you stole it. Both. Drive it like you stole it. <laughs> burn the candle at both ends. I was uh, <laughs> combining the two there. You know, or burn it like you stole it. Really, you stole burn it, it like it's hot. Do it. It it, it, it behooves you to. Go Go ahead and burn it so that they don't figure out you stole it. Yeah. Seize the day. Spend like there's no tomorrow. Exactly. Because sometimes, well, sometimes there isn't. Or there's a a finite amount of tomorrow. Sometimes a leopard will bite your face off. You should just operate on the assumption that a leopard might bite your face off. So spend what you've got today. Well, that's good. I don't know if we'll fit that on a bumper sticker, though, Joe. Now, what we've described so far are, I think, what's known as the classical theories of aging. And in recent years, we should point out that some scientists have proposed various kinds of updates to accommodate new experimental findings. Maybe in the future we could come back to this uh, topic again and and explore the the most recent developments in in aging theory. But these are basically – I would say these classical theories are still pretty much intact. They're, mm-hmm. you know, you might need to modify them in some ways to to update them for newest experimental findings. But for example, in antagonistic pleiotropy, people still basically think that this is a good explanation for why a lot of the aging effects we experience take place. And it gives us room on which to build uh, further analysis. Yeah, of course. And it gives us room to say, if we understand how a process happens and why it happens, I wonder if it could be reversed ah. or undone. And of course, there's a lot of there is a lot of interest in this, given that uh, 
medical research is uniform, universally uh, funded by mortals, uh, right? Who uh, and many of them are are interested in possibly having more life w- to live, or, or if possible, uh, you know, an infinite amount. Right. So, of course, because we don't want to age and grow old and sag and wrinkle and and eventually die, scientists are always working on ways to beat aging. And some broad evolutionary mechanisms based on things like fruit fly research are actually known. But unfortunately, they're not the kind of simple medical fixes that could like be ethically applied to humans. They're they're evolutionary fixes that you couldn't really implement on purpose. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could in fruit flies and researchers have. So what are they? Well, one would be low adult mortality and high juvenile mortality. If you get a bunch of fruit flies and you create a scenario such that adults tend to survive longer than they would in the wild, while juveniles die very often, what actually happens is that the lifespan and the reproductive lifespan of the fruit flies increases over generations of evolution. And this kind of makes sense, right? If the, if the mating pool is limited to older individuals, genes that favor fitness in later life will be selected for. Hmm. And thus, these would be genes that prevent or delay aging, and they'll become more successful. Normally, evolution wouldn't care about those types of genes very much. But, of course, we can't do this to stop human aging unless we're prepared to, like, implement a policy that only people over a certain age can have children and then keep pushing the minimum age upwards. Obviously, we don't want to do that. Well, even in scenarios, like, you know, periods of history in which there is a high mortality rate for younger people, such as during wars, mm-hmm. uh, it's still I, – I don't think there's any data to back up the idea that this would definitely interfere with reproduction because obviously – there, there are children uh, that, that grow up in the uh, in the wake of war. Yeah. Uh, now, perhaps the the father is not there anymore, but reproduction has been initiated. But then that's a whole different area of study, like the effects of war on reproduction and the health of the resulting offspring. Um, something we've touched on before on the show, and we could easily revisit. Oh, yeah, that, that's all interesting stuff. Uh, another thing to point out about what I just mentioned about low adult mortality and high juvenile mortality contributing to extended lifespans. We know this works in fruit flies, but we can't predict other complicating factors that might stop this from working in other species, uh, though it does appear to be pretty general that species that have lower extrinsic mortality evolve longer lifespans. Like if you've got good defense mechanisms against predators and disease, or if you just happen to say end up on an island where you don't have many predators or mm-hmm. diseases, you will probably evolve over a long period of time to breed longer and live longer. Think about the great wizened tortoises of the Galapagos. They've got a shell. They don't have really natural predators mm-hmm. and they've got these long Long, long lifespans because the adults and the old adults can just keep on breeding. Yeah, and they probably have you know, a fair amount of moisture. <laughs> I think Aristotle would agree. Aristotle was on to something, yeah. No, they, they don't have moisture at all. They look so dry. <laughs> Those tortoises are like the driest looking creatures I can think of. But they live in a moist environment. Maybe that's it. Oh, that, that is true. But okay, so looking at more like potentially ethical medical fixes, are there things researchers are working on in order to beat aging in humans? Well, the answer is obviously yes. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of questions about whether these projects are 
actually a good idea and even if they are a good idea, whether they could be successful in principle. But there, there are plenty of people working on it. One example, of course, is the gerontologist and author Aubrey de Grey. He's made a whole career out of the idea going around promoting that we can and should be trying to completely defeat the process of aging and that we can do it within the next few decades. Yeah, he's uh, everyone's probably seen images of Aubrey de Grey before. He has this big wizard's beard. and he He's shows, Rasputin. Yeah, he shows up in all sorts. Of, he does look like Rasputin. He, he shows up in various uh, documentaries about this topic all the time. Uh, and his, his basic argument is, I think, rather ingenious. It's instead of viewing aging and death as this unbeatable war, you know, this this unbeatable um, uh, problem, mm-hmm. it's like break it up into smaller battles, smaller problems that you can win, that you can solve. Yeah, and I think this is the key appeal of his approach. He mm-hmm. says aging is not one thing. It's maybe seven things. Yes. For instance, the problem might be cells die off and aren't naturally replaced in the heart uh, or in the brain. And he says, we'll use stem cell uh, replacement for dying cells. Okay. Uh, or another example would be the body undergoes a proliferation of unwanted cells, such as fat cells that replace muscle and lead to diabetes. He says, we'll trick the problem cells into self-destruction through suicide gene therapy, this sort of thing. So it's it's taking taking the overall problem, breaking it down into little individual problems that you could potentially solve through medical intervention, genetic engineering, etc. Now, for people who are interested in avoiding aging, obviously this message is very appealing. Yes. But, but there are also, we should mention, many researchers who find DeGray's program unrealistic. Like, he has plenty of critics. Well, on one level, it's kind of the basic trans, anti-transhumanist argument, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if okay, if you break down... Uh, essentially immortality into a number of different treatment options that are available, then then who are they available to? Who has access to these treatments? Mm-hmm. And then it becomes this uh, this uh, this inequality situation where you have the, the very dystopian idea of the super rich individuals who can afford all of the various treatments that that keep their unnatural lives going while the rest of us simply live and die as always. I would say the answer to that critique is not that you shouldn't develop the medical technologies, Mm -hmm. but that you should find ways to make them available to everyone. Yes. Then again, you do have that intrinsic question of whether it's actually good to allow any member of a species to be biologically immortal, uh, to keep on living and consuming resources beyond what would what would normally be allotted to them in a normal lifespan, because – as we talked about earlier on, there's this whole good of the species argument. Your genes might not care about the good of the species, but you should, right? We should. Yeah, well, it's an easy argument for for, for us to make. But then again, we're not uh, 150 years old and, and hooked up to the immortality machine. Right. Well, once your time comes, you will probably change your tune, right? It's like, <laughs> no, give me a little more. I, I just need a little more. <laughs> One more year. <laughs> Um, but then again, yeah, so that's like the question of whether we should be trying to achieve biological immortality. There's also this question that many scientists have, have brought up, which is that his program is unrealistic, not necessarily that it's a bad idea, but that you, you can't extend aging mm. for, or not extend, you can't extend youth forever. There are just going to be hard physical limits that you're going to hit within the human body. Just one example of that strain of thinking is a paper that uh, came out earlier this year in 2017, uh, published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences called Intercellular Competition and the Inevitability of Multicellular Aging. So this study was conducted by uh, scientists Joanna Massel and Paul Nelson. And Massel and Nelson use mathematical models to argue that essentially no matter what you do, 
you will be faced with one facet of aging or another. And the main tension they highlight is tissue deterioration or cancer. One or the other. It's a mathematical inevitability, they say. If you find a way to prevent cancer, tissues deteriorate and cells become less efficient. You get the body breaking down. If you find a way to rejuvenate tissues, beef them up, make them youthful again, you get cancer. Age is going to get you one way or another. Uh, it's like we're on that trolley car, right? <laughs> we, we have the tracks diverging to two uh, unwanted fates, uh, yeah. in a sense, equally unwanted fates. And we have to try and figure out, well, which way are we going to go? What are we going to plow into? I feel like this should be reimagined as a myth, like going back to Tithonus. Like I, I want the gods, <laughs> uh, gods that represent – one represents cancer mm-hmm. and one represents the deterioration of body tissues. Mm-hmm. And they're like at war and you, you have to choose between your fate with one or the other. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, this is, this is where um, our modern-day gods can jump in. And, uh, and provide us the, the story to make sense of our, our doom. Okay, well, I guess that wraps it up for, <laughs> for part two of this episode about why we age and why we can't have eternal youth. Yeah, well, and I don't want to leave it on too dark of a note there with the old doom talk. Uh, because, uh, I mean, ultimately, I guess here's the, here's the, the silver lining. Uh, aging, even dying, Everybody does it. It couldn't be. It couldn't be that much to it, right? <laughs> Look at the people who do it. It couldn't be. It couldn't be that difficult. It couldn't be that hard to go through. Well, I mean, it, it's easy to get down when you spend a lot of time thinking about the inevitability of aging and death. But, um, I mean, the thing to think about is, yeah, it, it comes to everybody. It's a part of life, and there's a lot of life to love. Yeah, and uh, it, it bears reminding that there is a lot of stuff you can do in the in the near future to make your uh, your far future. Uh, a little more uh, easygoing. You know, you can look after the body you have. You can, uh, you know, exercise and try to eat right. Uh, I think I saw a study saying you need to eat a bunch of chocolate to to make it. I think that's what it was. <laughs> well, then the, that's the other side, too, is like you, you're going to grow old. You're going to die. You can't just spend your whole time worrying over uh, that inevitability. So you might as well have some chocolate. You might as Oh, no. I mean, I was joking about those articles that actually say chocolate will make you live longer. Oh, okay. Not just the ones where, where there's like a new study out that points to uh, some beneficial quality of like pure, unsweetened chocolate. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's always couched in like eat chocolate to be healthier. Well, if it's not couched in it, that's how I think sometimes we interpret it. We read the yeah. study and we're like, well, good. I like chocolate or I like red wine or I like coffee. Mm-hmm. And now I can just continue to enjoy the things that make my life uh, more bearable and uh, and not worry about what they might be doing to me. Anytime you read an article about the one silver bullet thing to eat uh, mm-hmm. or to drink that will make you live forever, don't believe it. <laughs> I agree. Unless that one silver bullet thing is the quickening, which will work. Can the quickening be transferred to another, though? I'm a little shaky on, uh, on my, my quickening uh, science. I don't know. We'll have to come back to that. What's the quickening conversion rate? I don't know. I think you just have to be from the planet Zeist, right? Remember Highland. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there you go. Uh, Again, this was a two-parter. If somehow you made it through all of part two without listening to part one, go back and listen to part one. You will find it and all other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. And you'll get our moisture jokes. That's right. (laughs) And, uh, hey, while you're at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, you'll also find links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, etc. And if you want to support our show, uh, you can visit that website, and you can also just 
leave us a, a rating, star rating, uh, textual rating at wherever you get your podcasts. Of course. As always, big thanks to Alex Williams and Tari Harrison, our excellent audio producers. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, the old-fashioned way, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.